Welcome, everyone. It's the Paul Leslie Hour, and today we're proud to present an interview with the great Bill Whittle. Bill Whittle's a California-based writer, director, on-camera talent, pilot, and news commentator who speaks on America, history, and current events. He's the owner of BillWhittle.com, co-host of Right Angle, Bill Whittle Now, and the host of the Stratosphere Lounge. Real quick, before we start, if you have a moment, would you please go to www.thepaulleslie.com slash support, and you'll know what to do when you get there. And we thank you. Now we present a great thinker, a captivating speaker, a well-read historian, and unparalleled media personality, Bill Whittle. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to be joined by Bill Whittle. I want everyone out there to check out BillWhittle.com, W-H-I-T-T-L-E, and also look up Bill Whittle on YouTube. To give you a little backstory, I have been hooked on his videos for years. There's a number of shows that he produces and hosts. You could go right down the list. The Stratosphere Lounge, The Right Angle. There are some really compelling videos called The Firewall. But here we are with Bill Whittle himself, and it's a great pleasure. And for me also, Paul. Uh, and and I don't get a chance to be interviewed by this epic of mustache on, on any uh, normal day. <laughs> well, thank you. So today I, I wanted to do this as a kind of Bill Whittle on Bill Whittle interview about mm-hmm. you. But I just, because of the, the knowledge that you have on history, mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts at this particular time regarding the Ukraine-Russia, the news, that what, what's in the news today? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm married to a Russian woman. And uh, she's been sending me uh, videos of, of anti-war protests on the streets of Moscow. And I mean big ones. That's almost inconceivable to me. Uh, her her um, expatriate Russian friends, people living in the U.S., are enraged at Putin. And they're also, all of them, deeply ashamed, like crying ashamed. I've heard that... Uh, that Inside Russia, there's a great deal of anti-Americanism, but that's to be expected given the, the propaganda load that, that they get. It's hard for us to appreciate really how how central we are to the rest of the world and what a shock it comes to them when they realize that we don't spend our whole day figuring out how we can, you know, take over Russian territory or, or you know, they just, they just, if there's an earthquake or bad weather, it's America's fault as far as they're concerned. But the, but the Russians that I've talked to here, are mortified by all this, and, and apparently a significant number of the Russian people are too. But in terms of like a bigger view of this, Paul, this is a, it's a mimeograph of, of what happened uh, in, in Nazi Germany in, in Munich. You have a weak president, and you've got an aggressive, risk-taking autocrat who knows that he can only move when, when there is weakness, because as, as was the case with Hitler, Britain and France combined were far, far stronger than Germany when he was making those moves. He just had met those leaders, and he thought they were worms. He took the measure of them, and he was convinced that they wouldn't do anything. And he was right up until a point. And Putin's going to get away with this up until a point. 
of all the things I know about history, I have to tell you, the, 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 sing, the, the absolute single most astonishing and depressing and interesting piece of, of historical fact that I ever heard in my life came to us from after the war. We, we got a hold of the German High Command, uh, OKW, that's uh, Oberkommando de, de Wehrmacht, the German High Command, the generals. We got a hold of all of their notes and meetings and, and minutes and so on. And the very first adventure that Hitler went on was to, was to march into the Rhineland. It was still technically Germany, but the Treaty of Versailles said you couldn't have any troops in there. And Hitler basically marched, uh, you know, like a, a company, a small group, maybe 50, 100 guys, marched them across the bridge into the Rhineland. And when nobody did anything, then he kept going and he kept going and he kept going. But what we found out from the notes of the German uh, high command was that they were convinced that France was going to resist this. And if they had, they would have overthrown Hitler and 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 that would have been it because they knew they weren't ready for a war. What they actually said was if a French policeman, a constable, had been standing on that bridge, there wouldn't have been a World War II because that's how much of a bluff this whole thing was. So when you have a when you have an American president who basically says, uh, "Yeah, well, if it's a minor border incursion, I guess we wouldn't really get too lathered up about that." That's for people like Putin. That's an invitation, and I feel the same way about a American military presence as I do about defund the police thing. People, it's easy to it's easy to have a lot of disdain for the police, and it's easy to see the excesses of the police, which which are occasionally committed. But that's putting them against a perfect world. You have to measure a police force against what a world without a police force looks like. Right. And and if we had shown resolve here, I'm not saying we get into a, a land war in, uh, in, in the Ukraine, but I am saying if we had said, uh, listen, uh, Vlad, I'm a little concerned about you, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to put a 1,000 American Army Rangers half a mile inside the Ukrainian border, and they're going to be armed with Javelin anti-tank weapons. And if you invade this sovereign country and you go a mile inside it because we don't want to have any confusion, then we're going to open fire on you. Just thought I'd let you know. He wouldn't have done it. He certainly wouldn't have done it if Trump was president because Donald Trump understands these kind of people. He understands how bullies work and he understands how they pounce on weakness. That's what they do. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's something I've always wondered about. Since you mentioned your wife, mm -hmm. we are both married to uh, women from that part of the world. Oh. And I'm curious, what kind of influences that had being married to your wife, who's from Russia? It's given me a perspective on um, on the Russian viewpoint. I had, One of the first things my wife said to me when we were talking, when we first met online before we met, in person. Well, she said, you know the history of my country better than I do. And, hmm. and I, I probably did. My wife said, the, I, I thought the most astute thing I've ever heard said about Vladimir Putin from anybody. She said that Putin loves Russia. It's the Russian people he doesn't care about. <laughs> and I thought that's exactly it, because they've been suffering from previous sanctions going back to 2008 when he went into Georgia. But here's directly to answer your question. I have gotten a much better idea of the Russian attitude towards the Ukraine and, the, and their psychology of it. They believe that 
the Ukraine is an errant state of theirs that they put a great deal of money, time, and, and uh, infrastructure into. And that they bas basically, once the Soviet Union fell apart, they ungratefully went over to the other side. Now, I thought, that kind of sounds kind of thin to me. And she said, well, how would you feel if California uh, uh, left the Union, and then a year later, you find out that there are Chinese air bases on the border with Arizona, and Chinese tanks on the border with Oregon. How would you feel about that? You'd feel pretty threatened by it. So Russia and America have, I did a, a series called uh, for Daily Wire called The Cold War, what we saw is a 14-part episode on the Cold War. And I started that series by saying that Russia and America have negative images of what the world looks like because of our history. Mm -hmm. Russia's been, is bordered by, I don't know, is it 17 countries, something like that. Uh, they have a history of, of being invaded, Napoleon and, and Hitler being the most memorable recent examples, but they've always needed buffer states. They've always needed a, some, some kind of a territory that wasn't Russia because they're just so conditioned to being invaded. Americans, on the other hand, you know, we've got we got four friendly borders. We got the Atlantic Ocean on the east. We got Canada to the north. We got the Pacific to the well. We have three friendly borders, uh, but but even the border with Mexico is not a militar militarized border. And so we can't conceive of the we cannot connect to the kind of inborn paranoia that the Russian people have, and to some degree have earned. You know. 20 million soldiers and 20 million civilians killed last time somebody rolled into that country. That leaves a psychic mark on a people that does not go away. And and because Russia has been invaded so many times, they cannot conceive of the fact that America would not want to invade them. The idea of a country that's not actually trying to take something else from somebody, territory, right, it's, it's, it's as inconceivable to them as it is for us to say, why is he doing this? You know, why do they keep attacking these countries? So uh, I have come to realize that that the, the Russian people feel that, that Ukraine has essentially betrayed them and has gone over to the other side and, it, and is posing a real threat. That's all a way of looking at it. But the bottom line is when, when, when everything comes down to the end of it, I'm a realist. He moved his tanks across a national border. He invaded that country. No question about who's wrong here. Hmm. Russia has no Russia has no claim on on the Ukraine at all, in my opinion. None. They are a sovereign nation, and they have been independent since the breakup of the Soviet Union. You don't just get to kick somebody's door down because because you don't like the politics that they've adopted. Hmm. You know, I've often thought with the the content that you create. That being that you're a non mainstream, you know, with the, the content you produce, it's certainly nothing you'll find on CNN or MSNBC. But it seems like you're, does it seem like to you, like almost like pushing a boulder up a hill? That's a, you know, it depends on my mood. That's, that's my, that's my instant reaction. I'm feeling much better now than I did a year ago for a couple reasons. First reason is the Virginia election. Uh, uh, when a Republican won in Virginia, that convinced me that the electoral system is at least you can beat it if you have a big enough 
majority. It is not completely rigged because they fought hard for that. After 2020, I thought well, there, there's never going to be another uh, election again. There's never going to be a Republican elected again because of the, the, the mechanisms that they put in place, mail-in voting and, and you know, the electronics, all this. So that encouraged me. But the main reason I'm feeling good now is because 10 years ago, I was trying to look 10 years ahead, and I said, man, we're in for real trouble. And now that we're in real trouble, I look 10 years ahead, and I said, things are going to be golden. I finished a, a piece yesterday called The Deep State Rises, and basically what I said is the danger that a submarine is essentially an extremely fragile warship. It's small, it's tiny, it's thin-skinned World War II submarine. It's got one deck gun. If a submarine comes to the surface, the sub's going to lose every time. It's The only way it's able to succeed is because of its invisibility. And I said that the Canadian truckers basically drop some depth charges and force that sub to come to the surface, and you look at at Canada now, and you said, my God, these are actual fascists in, in this polite, decent, most civilized, civil country in the world. There's this entire substrata of fascists and policemen and all the rest. Sub came up and went back down again. So what I see around the world is more and more every day, I see this as less of an American problem and more of a worldwide problem, where the elites of the world are trying to take the entire planet into their little a uh, cyber fourth industrial revolution world where they own everything and and you know i i am more convinced every day that that they have been shellacked and and i i had many conversations with andrew breitbart about this that led to him saying that politics is downstream of culture but the culture is just a faster reactor than politics you can make a decision about a movie that day mm. uh decision about a president happens every four years. So people are constantly making choices, cultural choices in real time. And if you want to know what the politics are going to look like in the future, you need to watch what people are, the kind of decisions they're making right now in terms of what are they interested in, what are they buying, and what are they not buying. And when you have something like Star Trek and Star Wars, that back of my room, for example, is a Star Trek museum, when you have something that people love as much as that, and they will walk away from Star Wars rather than put up with woke Star Wars, mm. same for Star Trek. If they would walk away from it rather than swallow this, that tells me all across the board that nobody wants this stuff. Nobody. And it's also been my contention that, that the reason that so many uh, young men play video games and so many hours playing video games is it gives them a chance to, to, to be conservatives with, without people bitching at them. <laughs> you know, I mean, every video game, essentially, every video game consists of two things. You make money and you buy weapons. I'm in favor of both these things. And and when you look at things like Call of Duty, Medal of Honor, these kind of things, you see that basically what they're doing is they're allowing millennials to jump out of airplanes and shoot Nazis and drive fast and blow things up. And, and that's telling me you can't beat the biology out of people. You can you can make them bow their head and apologize. And, 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 and I'm not saying they don't really believe in Bernie, but but their actual behavior is, no, they're young men. They, they, they want to shoot things, blow them up. And I find that to be a tremendously encouraging sign, given how hard they're pushing. Hmm. It's, it's so interesting. And, I, again, I want to encourage everybody to check out the Bill Whittle YouTube channel, because all these things that you're talking about, they can see the videos that you're talking about and go in deeper to these different things. You know, I've often thought, like, especially the thing going on in Canada, the different 
conflicts that we have going on here of wokesters versus normal people, or I don't know what you would call us, American normal people. people. It's a great expression, because that's what they hate. <laughs> they hate normality. They can't stand it. Yeah, that's true. But uh, why do you think that people persist with collectivism, with lack, like anti-individualism? Why? I just finished an episode of a show I do with Alfonso Rachel called The Virtue Signal. We talked about this very subject. And, and I said that, you know, the, the labels that we have today, there's only two labels that, that stick, that, that make sense today and have made sense throughout all of history. Democrats, Republicans, conservatives. You know, I'm, I'm a conservative because I'm trying to conserve classical liberalism, right? So all these terms constantly morphing and changing. But the only terms that I've ever felt really stuck were individualist versus collectivist. That's basically it. The Soviet Union were collectivists. The Nazis were collectivists. So, and the Democrats are, are collectivists. So when you ask a question like that, I live in California, and I live in a, in a state where I still see people driving around in their Priuses wearing a mask inside their cars with the windows rolled up and nobody else in the car. So what that's telling me is, is that there are there are many people out there who are basically frightened and and they need the reassurance of society in order for them to feel okay about themselves. That's one side of the spectrum is people who need the reassurance of society. Movie stars are like that. Movie stars are pathetic, pathetic creatures who, who are just, you know, they have everything in the world and they just need to be more applause, you know, more love. On the other side of the spectrum, you have people like you and me who, who don't need social approval. And not only that, we're confident enough in our own selves and our own beliefs that we're willing to go against social proof, which is a tough swim. And then somewhere in the middle are, 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 are most people who, who hear what they hear on the news and they believe what most people believe because that makes sense. It's, you know, people say sometimes, I, I always hated this term sheeple. I've always just thought that was just a, right on the road to the kind of arrogance that the left has. If I, if I walk up to a building and there's a line of people outside the building, I'm probably going to stand in line because that's probably what you have to do to get in the building. Mm. So that kind of thing is more, much more often right than wrong. But, I think when you get right down to it, there are some people, Paul, that just that are afraid of freedom, and 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 uh, this goes back uh, quite a long way. Uh, I think it was Eric Fromm, one of one of the first Freudians, wrote a book called Escape from Freedom, and basically what he was saying is that for many people, they'd rather be comfortable and they'd rather be certain than be free or even be happy. My feeling is from international stuff and from personal stuff, is that the one thing that humans cannot tolerate is uncertainty. We would rather get bad news than no news. In fact, we would collapse a no-news situation into bad news just to get out of being in a no-news situation. So when you look at how complex society gets, there are a lot of people who just not only don't think they can handle it, they don't want to handle it. They want somebody to tell them when it's safe to go outside. They want somebody to tell them, you know, what they, they, they don't want to worry about finding the best insurance policy. They just want to have just want to walk in a hospital and show them a card. And now we have the added problem of an entire uh, two generations that have been trained to be socialists. When you hand out when you hand out an achievement award, when everybody who's playing in the game gets a trophy. That's how you make socialists. 
because you not only don't allow people to excel as individuals, you punish them for it. Mm. And and this has been look, look the the left is is so full of bad ideas, but they have one quality that really makes them as successful as they are. They know how to take the long view. Two qualities: they know how to take the long view, and they put their money where their mouth is. And that's what's uh, done so much damage for us. Hmm. Well, you know, I was watching a, a, a video that you did the other day, and you were mentioning Trey Gowdy. Yeah. And I'm curious, who are the the commentators out there, the the people who who express their minds, who you admire? I don't listen to many of them. My admiration for them usually comes from what they do when they're not doing their shows. Because I live in Hollywood and because there may or may not have been an organization of Hollywood conservatives at some time, which I can neither confirm or deny, but nevertheless, uh, I've had a chance to meet many of them and introduce them. I've had a chance to uh, introduce Mark Levin, Glenn Beck. I had a chance to meet Rush Limbaugh. All of them told me they admired my work, which is enough to make, you know, it's just like you just want to swoon, right? You're, you're, you're like a, you know, you're like a junior baseball player and you, you walk into a park and like the greatest ball player in history says, yeah, you, you can really pitch, kid. Like, oh, but, but I, I admire all of them. I know some of them better than others. I did 500 shows with Andrew Clavin, who's a, who's, we have a kind of a fake feud running, which we do just for fun. Ben Shapiro is an intellectual razor. Glenn Beck, I saw Glenn Beck at CPAC talking about the Statue of Liberty, and he, and he blew me away. And then I introduced him here, and I don't want this to sound as bad as it's going to, but I might as well just wallow in my own crapulence here. I, I've been to 200 events where I've been a public speaker, and Glenn Beck is the only guy I ever saw that that could that could hold a room the way that I can hold a room. And and I remember thinking, this is awesome. Because I would sit there watching him, watching him just go through this, and I'm and I'm and I'm saying to myself, I think I can beat that guy, or I can, I can match him anyway. But it would take everything I have. It's always good to play with people who are better than you are, you know. Glenn is an incredible storyteller. Rush, of course, is just a giant. The person who made me a conservative was P.G. O'Rourke, hmm. who we lost just a, a week ago. P.G. O'Rourke originally started out as a long-haired left-wing bomb-throwing hippie. And woke up. I was never that far left, but I did go to college, which poisoned my mind, obviously. And and P.J. O'Rourke got to me because he made it he made it cool to be a conservative. He not only wasn't ashamed of it, he was he was really proud of it in such a way that he would say things like, you know, essentially he would say, "Look, we're the ones that believe in in fast cars, loud guns, and hot women. You know, they're the weenies." <laughs> We're not the weenies. They're the weenies. They're the ones that want you to wear a wetsuit and a helmet in the shower so you don't hurt yourself. You know, why, why are we taking this this Squaresville thing? I thought, I mean, he's absolutely right, you know. And, and P.J. O'Rourke also had a, a quality similar to Andrew Breitbart, and that is he had, he had the ability to deal with the left like a matador. And what I mean by that is he wouldn't try and stand in front of this onrushing bull and go head to head with it and just try and stop it. He would just let it come right at him. And at the last second, he'd get out of the way and he put a little flourish on it as, as he went by. My favorite example of this by far was 
it was in one of his introductions, I think, to his book. And P.G. O'Rourke said, uh, you know, conservatives like me are often accused of being a Nazi. And that doesn't really bother me that much because I know that in all of recorded history, no woman has ever had a fantasy about being ravaged by a man dressed up like a liberal. <laughs> right? And so, and so there you go. That's not defending Nazism. It, it, it's, it's just, the, the charge is so ridiculous, right? That we individualists who want nothing but personal freedom, right? That we're Nazis when Nazi means National Socialist German Workers Party. The charge is so ridiculous that the response has to be equally ridiculous, and it just completely disarmed it as far as I was concerned. I thought this guy is, is just just the bomb, and and I try to do that to a large degree. You know, I try to I try to keep it funny, and I try to and I and I never forget that the way you beat these people is to immediately run up to them and kick them square in their unearned moral superiority. <laughs> Never let them get away with that. <laughs> Ever. Because they're not the good guys. That's that's very true. <laughs> not the good guys. It's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned P.J. O'Rourke. He was the first conservative person that I interviewed on this largely arts and entertainment show. I never got to meet him. No. No, I really wanted to. I got to meet virtually everybody else, but but never him. I was, I was quite quite sad to hear about him going. The number one thing that I got from people when I interviewed him were emails from people who told me that they were liberal, but they agreed with the things he said, which to me was like, what is that supposed to mean? It's because it's because of his he had he had that self deprecating touch that Nazi thing is a great example. He did His first real book was called Republican Party Reptile because when he first went to his first Republican convention, they just saw this long-haired hippie, you know, and they was just a reptile. He owned it. And, and he was always mocking the process, you know, and that, and that disarms people. When you can make fun of yourself or make an admission that, you know, that the other side is right about this one thing or another, people come out of their trenches. And, and they stop this automatic kind of shoot at whatever moves out there kind of thing. And, and, and he was a, a master. He's a genius. And, and very funny, but very, very, very deep. He, I'm trying to remember this. Oh, yeah. He said, there's only one human freedom and that's the freedom to do as you damn well please. And there's only one human responsibility and that is to take the consequences. And I thought, what else do you need? You know? Hmm. That's awesome. Well, I've heard from people through the years. An old friend of mine, Buck, is the one who turned me on to Bill Whittle and the Bill Whittle YouTube channel. And then there's my dear dad who, who loves your videos. And so I'm curious because there are a lot of people you see sharing and commenting on the videos you create. Has there been a favorite compliment that you received? Yes. Although it has almost nothing to do with the first compliment I received that really went through me like a hot poker was before I even started doing the videos. I was writing a blog called Eject, Eject, Eject and starting to talk about these ideas. And I'd done a number of essays and somebody wrote to me and said, Bill, I was uh, I was on the first wave at Iwo Jima and I think you're worth a battalion. And then I was like, wow. But the, the ones that that impressed me the most. A lot of people say they, you know, that I, I, I just woke them up, just got them to think about things. But, but because I've talked about so many of the problems I've had in my past, especially mostly during the stress-free lounge show, 
met a number of people who tell me that they were really seriously thinking about suicide until I started talking about being clinically depressed and, and all the hard years. I, I spent three decades essentially just completely broke, 100% out of money. And when people tell you that, you realize now you're really down to brass tacks, right? Opinions are opinions, but people's lives, that's, that's it. That's all there is. This is why I have such why I have such contempt for these elitists that are trying to run our lives. You know, what what do they think the human experience is? I mean, we're we're ledgers for them. We're 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 we're, we're mouse clicks. My my main problem with AI is I'm very worried about AI. I'm worried about AI killing off all the people, but I'm more worried about the fact that what do we do if we invent machines that are smarter than us and so everything we design is never going to be as good as what this machine can design, right? Why do you need a Burt Rutan? To my utter amazement, is a friend of mine. Uh, he's an aircraft designer. He's, he's an absolute genius. Why do you need him if you've got a computer that can do 200,000 iterations of a design and then pick, you know, and what's the point of being human if you've got a machine that will do everything for you? What's, what's, what's this life about, you know? And, and when somebody says something that, that, that has that goes to that you know yeah you, you kept me going those kind of com- comments make all the rest of it they, they make me amazed that's the best word humbled and amazed I still can't believe it I still I don't think I ever will and I certainly don't want to I don't want to get to the point where I take this for granted anytime somebody comes up to me in an airport or somebody says really like your stuff it blows me away well what would you say if somebody came up to you and they complimented you And then they expressed some kind of hesitation about being public with what they truly believe. I've been, I got to Los Angeles in 88, and prior to doing full-time video work at PJTV in 2008, I was was a Hollywood editor. I was just in the business. And so when a bunch of Hollywood conservatives in entertainment got together, I, I ran most of those new member meetings and I got to talk to probably a thousand people who, who the business in Hollywood, show business in Hollywood was as hard on conservatives 10 or 15 years ago as the woke movement is now. It was kind of like a way to kind of see the future. And I would have sometimes have people, grown, grown men with tears in their eyes talking about how somebody would say, oh, George Bush is a war criminal, right, Jim? And you go, yeah, yeah, right, you know. Because he knows if he if he speaks up, he's not gonna he's gonna he's never gonna be hired again. And there's no way to prove that. In show business, everything's a gig economy, right? It's not like I've got 15, 20 years of seniority there, right? And they suddenly fire me. It's just you just don't get hired again. And there's no way to tell. It just happens. And I'm extremely sympathetic to that. Very sympathetic. I had nothing to lose except for my career. When I started doing this, I said. That, that's the end of me working in Hollywood, but, you know, i, I got to get this out. Now, with that said, the reason we're in this kind of trouble is because nobody's speaking out. The reason we're in this kind of trouble is because people are keeping their heads down and being quiet. So I guess what it comes down to ultimately is what is your personal situation? For me, for me, what really put it over the top was because I started I started writing right after the Iraq war invasion. And when I realized that 18-year-old men were not coming home in order to keep me free and safe, you don't have to agree with the Iraq war, but that's what that's what those men signed up for. 
And when you think about that kind of sacrifice and the sacrifice of all the people before us, and then you think, oh, so they're going to give the one life they have in order to make sure that my biggest problem is that I got, you know, latte milk, you know, I got soy milk instead of the almond milk I wanted. That's that's my big crisis for the day. When I thought about what they've lost, I thought it's disgraceful for me to – they deserve a better country than what they're getting. And, and for me to be quiet because I don't want to lose a job as an editor in Hollywood is a pretty low bar. You know what I mean? It's like, that, is that really the, the kind of sacrifice that you would expect to make when you, when you hear about these, these exploits? And everybody, everybody who joins the military, when you sign on the dotted line, you don't have to be a combat hero because once you sign on the dotted line, they can put you into dangerous places and get you killed and there's nothing you can do about it. So I have enormous respect for them and, and it just got to the point where I just realized you know, we all owe something, and and what's being asked of me is so ridiculous. You know, I, so you may not get another job as an editor in Hollywood. Really, that's that's the the major sacrifice you're going to have to make. It was a no-brainer for me. And if we weren't quiet, we wouldn't have this problem. Mm. Wow. Anybody who has visited California knows that the weather can just be delightful, and there's a lot of there's a lot of pluses, but you're in a unique position having the views and creating the kind of content that you do right there in Hollywood. I get asked a lot why I don't move from <laughs> California to, to a free country like the United States. And, uh, and I tell them, you know, if you're, if you're going to be a volcanologist, you got to live under the volcano. And, and that's true. But the, but, but the bottom line is, the honest answer is I spent 25 years in South Florida. And when I got off the plane here for the first time and, and I realized that outdoors is air conditioned, that it's 73 degrees pretty much every day and certainly every night. And there are no bugs out there. And you, you sit outside, you don't have to swat away mosquitoes and stuff. And, and South Florida, where I grew up, I think the highest point in South Florida is seven feet above sea level. It's flat as a board, and, and the Florida Turnpike is flat as a board, straight as an arrow for 20 miles, cranks 10 degrees one way, does another 20 miles, cranks another 10 degrees to the right. Driving down a coastline and, and being able to turn the steering wheel, I like to drive, you know, in a mountain pass, all of these things together, just, it's hard for me to leave. And and it's also important that I, that I, that I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to stop this contagion at the California border. You know what I mean? I know it's all flowing from California into the rest of the country along with many people with U-Hauls and stuff. And, I, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to get ahead of the rest of the country to, to figure out what it is they're really saying. Cause if I can figure out what they're saying, what they're doing, I can, I can help figure out a way to fight it. And they're awful people. They're just awful, awful, awful people. I used to, cause I'm just, so naive, I guess. I used to say to myself, how can they not see that they're destroying this golden goose? How can they not see it? And then I, and then I, I realized, no, they see it. They know. They just don't care. They know they're destroying everything. They just don't care. They're going to get their pension. They're going to get this or that or whatever. And, and what happens after that doesn't, it just it doesn't bother them. They don't care. And I have a hard time getting my head around that. But once you do, everything makes sense. I want to be respectful of your time. Do we have a hard stop? No, we're all good, man. I'm, I'm, okay. happy, I'm having a good time. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. 
Is there a book you can recommend to our listeners and Eat viewers? Rich by P.J. O'Rourke. Yeah? It's the best, it's the best treatise on, on economies and how societies function that I've ever read. He, he basically, I mean, he just comes out and says, let's look at good socialism, we'll go to Sweden, let's look at bad socialism, we'll go to Cuba. Let's get good capitalism. We'll go to America. Let's get bad capitalism. We'll go to Albania, where they're constantly you know, buy as many salt rifles as you want to and hand them out to your four-year-old children. And all of this stuff. He's got a chapter called "How to Make Something Out, How to Make Everything Out of Nothing," which is Hong Kong, and then "How to Make Nothing Out of Everything," which is Tanzania. And and he he gets into the economic systems of the country as a reflection of their cultural traditions and and so on, and makes you realize. Number one, this is how the world works. And number two, we live in this bubble. We live in this bubble that, that's been created by, by the protection that the military gives us and by all of the prosperity that businessmen, small business owners provide. We just think the rest of the world is, is like that. And when, when, it, when it's not like that, we think, but what's wrong with these people? You've got a sewer that's been running down the middle of your village for the last 500 years. PJ, in a, I don't know if, I think it was a different book, said, there's not an American male alive who, he said he was in Ukraine, he said it was, it was, I know it was Caucasian people because there were the Caucasus Mountains. And he said he was in this village in Ukraine, he said the soil was so rich you could just boil it for soup. And in the middle of this village was this, was this sewer, just this open sewer. And he said there's not an American born that didn't look at that and said, $200 in Home Depot, I can fix this thing forever. Right? We'll just fix it forever. Why don't they do it? What's wrong with them? And I came to realize there's nothing wrong with them. That's how humans have always been. We're the freaks. We're the mm. freaks. We're the genetic freaks. We're the ones that have the abnormal idea that, that we can change our environment rather than be ruled by it. And when I see that going away, I do what I can to keep it, you know, keep the ball rolling. I will definitely check out that book. Can I say one thing about what you mentioned earlier about the rolling Please. the boulder up the hill? Please do. We can lose this battle, but we can never win it because mm. we are because rust never sleeps, right? And the grass always grows. Mm. The second you put your lawnmower in the shed, the grass is growing, and you got to get up and you got to mow your lawn every week, and you got to and you got entropy. The running down of, of, of everything, of everything just trying to equal nice collectivist equal temperature is on the fit, is, is working for the left. It's, it's easier to not do something than to do something. And, and it's much easier to have a garden full of weeds than a rose garden. A rose garden takes a lot of work, constant effort. And so our challenge is we have to accept the fact that we have to get up and fight every day. And if we do, we win that day. But the big victory, we're never going to get a victory over the left. We're never going to get a victory over people who want to tell other people what to do. That's a flaw in the human condition. It's always been there. It's always going to be there. So we just have to realize all we have to do is win today. All we have to do is cut the grass today and be ready to cut it again tomorrow. But but if you do that, life is grand. There's never hmm. been anything like it. Great analogy. Bill Whittle, what are you most grateful for? My wife. 
that's the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I, I look back at the uh, person I used to be, and I don't know how I fit into that person. Hmm. You know? I'm very, very grateful to be an American, and my wife comes with that. By the way, yesterday we got notice from immigration that her citizenship application has been approved. So she's going to she's gonna take the oath ceremony in the next uh, week or so. And then she'll be just as American as anybody else in this country. She'll be just as American as the Astors or the Rockefellers or anybody else. And, and that's the miracle of America. And that's why when, of all the slanders leveled against conservatives, being anti-immigrant is one of the worst of them. I don't know a single hmm. conservative who's anti-immigrant. I know every conservative who is anti-illegal immigrant because it spits in the face of the people who are trying to do the right thing. There's the people out there now, right now in Vietnam or, or in, in, you know, wherever. Anyway. And they are standing in line and they're paying money and money that they often have to borrow in order to pay the attorneys, the immigration attorneys, do everything the right way. They wait, 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 wait. And then they come here and they get the green card and that's an effort and they have to behave themselves and show their productive members of society. Then they have to take a test that I don't think, I don't think, I think probably, I know every conservative I know would pass this test, but if you gave it to the American public, especially millennials, I don't think any American Kids today would pass the citizenship test. I don't think they, I don't even think it'd be close. They have to do that, and and then you know they earn it. I I think if you come to this country and you and you do one term of of military service and you're honorably discharged, it should be automatic citizenship. And mm. and the problem isn't immigrants. Immigrants are not the ones destroying this country. The people destroying this country are, are these uh, these white liberals in in universities who who been here for five generations if i could if i could if i could swap a college professor for anybody who who is in line to come to this country to come here to live and contribute i'd do it in a heartbeat so it's the look it's the elites that that's the problem and one of the things i think that makes me effective when i can be effective is i sometimes tell people i'm a day walker you know i'm a vampire that kills other vampires because i understand them I, I've, I've worked in show business. I, I, I understand how this works. I understand where the, where that siren song of how bright you are, you know, takes you. I think intellectualism is the antithesis of intelligence. Intellectualism is intelligence that's been left in the back of the fridge for six months, you know, and, and, and it, and it's, and it's basically people who have to all agree on the same subject so that they can all convince each other of how smart they are. And you get somebody like Thomas Sowell, who's genuinely brilliant. He doesn't have to worry about whether people think he's smart or not. He knows how smart he is. He's probably the smartest guy in the world. And 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 he he just leaves that behind in the rear view mirror, just kind of must chuckle at it, you know. <laughs> but so much of, of what we see out there from the left is 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 just trying to appear to be something. I believe this because I want to appear smart. I believe this because I want to appear virtuous. And if it ends up doing harm, I don't care. It just I just need to look good. And I I got a bit of a problem with that. Because I can mm. I can see the I can see the appeal of it. There's a World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and all of these intellectuals that are that are ready for this new, you know, world government, you know, all the cyberspace control and all, all these people. They're, they're damaged people. Take Jeff Zuckerberg, for example, Paul. You saw him during some of those testimonies. Does that guy strike you as a, as a, as a normal human being? 
he he got as rich as he did because he's got a tremendously strong case of Asperger's. He, he does not form human connections the way that other people do. And we're now being tyrannized by a group of people who are mentally ill. They're brilliant, brilliant, right. but they're not fully human. They don't see other people as people. They see them as problems or, or, or ledgers or, or whatever, but they don't they don't see that. And watching him testify with that just a dead-eyed look, you know, it's like this guy is mm -hmm. determining whether somebody gets to hear what I have to say or, for that matter, you know, what anybody on the left. Th this guy is deciding this, this right. reptile. I don't know. And I saw the clip you, uh, I forget which show, but you played that. What's his name? Klaus? Uh, Schwab. Just did that one yesterday. That's it. Klaus Schwab. Last night. Yeah, I'm, I'm right on the button. I saw that one. And I can't imagine anybody watching, listening, or meeting this person and thinking, yes, this is somebody we should go with, you know? Exactly. But what, what the World Economic Forum does is they have this young leaders of tomorrow kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So they basically take college kids like Justin Trudeau, who's a graduate of this and, and, and many other people, and basically tell them, you are so incredibly smart, you're going to be big. You're going to be a big, big thing. You're going to be one of the leaders of the world. We want to help you. Here's some money. And so when you when you get somebody at that age and, and you just keep them, they just like they're like a plant. They just grow into it. The thing I remember most about being 20 was that I passionately believed in things I knew nothing about. <laughs> right. Had a real strong emotional opinion about things I knew nothing about. Strange, because that, that time of life when you're trying to break away from your parents, you're kind of biologically wired to rebel against everything. It's like we send people to college at the time when they are biologically least capable of learning anything. <laughs> you know, just let them go hike around the world for four. Bring them back when they're 25, 26, that kind of thing. On the note of, uh, of people who are uh, disturbing on some level, maybe that's a weird segue, but... What was your initial reaction when you started seeing Fauci making the news cycle back in 2020? When I first saw Fauci and I heard that he was leading virologist or epidemiologist in the country, I thought, okay, good. And then, so this, so California locked down on March 18th of 2020. It's almost two years ago. And for those first several weeks, I, I was complete. Look, this two weeks to flatten the curve thing. I was I was completely down with that, 100. percent mm -hmm. We didn't know what we were facing. Mm -hmm. We didn't know how bad it was going to be. We we could already tell from the few cases we had by the time we did the lockdown that this COVID-19 was a pretty picky eater. You know, it was just going for old and sick people, and and the, the and the mortality rate among people under under 60 is just close to zero. It might as well be zero. But Old people are people too, and if staying indoors would protect them while we're trying to figure out what's going on, and you know, what are we going to see? Are we going to have, are we going to have bodies in body bags in hospital corridors? Is this where we're going? Nobody mm. really knew. But by the time we got to the end of April, middle of April, it was clear that we were getting nothing like what they were telling us that we were getting. And the person who really did the most to point that out was actually Elon Musk. He, 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 I want to say end of April, somewhere in there, he basically said, you know what, I'm looking at the actual hospital data, 
and we're going back to work. We're starting up the Tesla plant. And California said, no, you aren't. No, 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 we got a lockdown. And Musk said, look, here's a chart. Here are your project, projected fatalities, and this little line across the bottom are the actual number of people in hospital beds. This is data. That's a guess. Mm-hmm. Data says this is a manageable risk, so I'm going to open the plant, and if you're going to arrest somebody, come and arrest me. Don't arrest any of these other employees. You know, I'm telling them to come down. And, and from that point forward, I began to realize these people are making this up as they go along, and then as you start to realize, you know, so, Paul, probably one of the most influential things in my life was I was on the debate team in high school. And, boy, you want to talk about being a chip magnet. Uh, <laughs> so me and a bunch of other skinny nerds were on the debate team. And in debate, you're given a general topic. Our, our senior year was uh, prison reform. And there's a literally a flip of a coin, and you have to either argue in favor of prison reform or against it. And that means that in order to prepare for debate, because it's about the argument, you had to have index cards showing, for example, that capital punishment deters murder. And you also had to have a bunch of index cards showing that capital punishment doesn't deter murder. And when I realized that you could find an endless list of experts on any position you wanted in direct opposition to each other, Mm. I realized, all right, I'm going to have to use common sense, which is which is not as common as it should be, number one, and number two, which is grossly underestimated. I'm going to have to use common sense and try to figure out which one of these things is true by weighing the evidence. So over the course of time, I've enjoyed shooting down a lot of conspiracy theories, and now I agree with Donald Trump 100%. The difference between a conspiracy theory and proven fact is six to 12 months. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And yeah. I see things happening that I simply could not believe were real, but they are real. Yeah. In 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 March of 2020, two weeks after the lockdowns, there were scientists repeatedly saying the base pair sequence, the genetic code of COVID COVID-19, has entire 60,000 base pair long segments that have been cut and pasted into it. And they said the chance of that happening naturally is zero. And I thought, is this guy a crackpot or is he, or is he know what he's talking about? And his credentials were good and, and he didn't talk like a crackpot and he laid out the evidence and I started, you know, paying attention to this. Fauci is, is at the intersection of the big media lie, the big pharma, pharmacological lie and the big government lie. These giant three things overlap in a Venn diagram right smack in the middle is this guy. He hmm. is a very, very, very bad man. And he is he is primarily bad for the same reason that so many of these intellectual elitists who want to run our lives are bad. And that is because they're very smart in one area, they think they're smart in every area, hmm. and they think that they have got everything figured out. But the track record of elitists is extraordinarily poor, very poor. So Fauci was involved with gain-of-function research with China, and somebody in the Obama administration said, this is too dangerous, stop doing this. Mm. It's against the law now. So he took some money, ran it through another company, and sent it back to Wuhan, because he knew that they could handle it. So look, I'm convinced it came from the lab, I don't think there's any question it came out of the lab. So So you're really left with two possibilities. Are they incompetent? 
or are they criminals? Because there's no middle ground, right? Either they, they thought they could contain this virus for research and they failed, which means they should not be messing around with this stuff because they're not capable of doing it, or it didn't get out by accident. There's no, there's no other conclusion that you could draw. They're either incompetent or they're criminal. They, they might be both, but they gotta be one of those two things. And, and this guy just went ahead and kept doing this gain of function research. We're gonna take viruses that don't infect humans and we're gonna put them in a spike protein so that they can infect, infect humans. I don't know what their particular goal was, but there are some things that, that are just too dangerous to be played around with and they don't have the wisdom. They have no wisdom. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you something really interesting. This is one of the most interesting things I ever found out. Hmm. Ever. There is a, a mathematical and a statistical model to, to prove that this is, is actually happening. But the guy who first formulated it was an Englishman, and I think he was in the, probably in the late 1800s. And he was on vacation at the seaside town, and there was a competition where they were selling an ox. It's not something you see every day here today, but apparently back then, they weren't selling an ox, sorry. They were giving the ox away, right? Mm -hmm. And it was a prize. And and the prize went to the person who could best determine what that ox weighed. Okay? So you would think, well, ox breeders, farmers, you know, they, they would have a good idea. Butchers might have a good idea. But do you know, do you know who got the answer correctly right? Hmm. The, the exact answer to the pound was the average of every single answer. <laughs> Interesting. Okay? If you take all of the answers together and average them out, you land right on ah. that box. That is a shockingly profound thing that's been proven again and again. Now, the people who study this mathematically say that, that large numbers of regular people will eventually triangulate on the truth to a high degree of precision so long as so long as there's no external factor influencing their, their decisions. So in the case of the ox, what it means is you go up and guess what the ox weighs. I think it weighs 200 pounds. Are you crazy? It weighs 2,000 pounds. I put in my 200, you put in your 2,000. As long as there's nobody, as long as there's nobody saying, listen, I'm a butcher yeah. and I know that this thing weighs 850 pounds. Right now, everybody else's opinion is skewed. If you take that out of it, the mass of people together, each individual opinion, no two of them may be exactly right, but the, but a large number of people, regular people, will come to the correct conclusion all the time. And these intellectuals have nothing but disdain for that because it makes them feel like they're not special, but they're not. You know, uh, people, there was a, a poster, and it's still probably popular, it was big back in the 2003-04 when the Iraq war started. There's a picture of Albert Einstein, and, and he said, you cannot simultaneously prepare for and prevent war, Albert Einstein. And a lot of lefties were sending this meme around. And Einstein's probably the most brilliant guy who ever lived. Mm -hmm. But Einstein knows jack about politics. Right. You wouldn't go to Albert Einstein for grooming tips, right? He's a completely right. disheveled guy. He would walk around the neighborhood and knock on his own door because he was so wrapped up with trying to figure out what happens at the speed of light. If you're driving at the speed of light, you turn your headlights on. That's where his head was. You cannot take his, his brilliance in astrophysics and apply it to politics. As a matter of fact, 
he is so far away from the normal human experience that he is probably the worst person in the world to ask about a very human activity like warfare. Now, if, you, if, if, if George Patton had said that, or Curtis LeMay, or, 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 you know, William Tecumseh Sherman, that would carry some weight. But this is, this is the, the fallacy of the intellectual and the expert. The expert's a better word. It's a fallacy of the expert. They're good at one thing, and, and that makes them think that they're good at everything. And these are the kind of people who, who, if they have a model, if, if they're down below decks in a ship, and they've done all their research and everything, and they've determined, they've made their little map, and they've done all their plotting and their calculations and the drift and the wind factor and all the rest of it, tides. And they're convinced that we are now out in front of a river delta. And then they go upstairs to the bridge and look out and see a mountain range. They're convinced that the mountain range is wrong, right? If the atmospheric data contradicts our computer model, then the atmosphere must be wrong. Mm. This is this is how they believe things to be. And this is why they have nothing but contempt for regular people, because because we're, we're not part of their model. And that really bothers them, because there's something really wrong with them. Yeah. Wow, that, that, that was a great example there with the ox. That's you amazing, hope- isn't it? It blows my mind, but yeah. it's true. Yeah. And it, it kind of reminds me of something that Andrew Clavin said. Which has been my experience, Andrew Clayton, <laughs> Andrew K. Yeah, he said uh, that regular people, like just your average, average everyday American or whatever country, they know something that intellectuals don't, and that's been my experience. And I would consider Fauci an intellectual. Yeah, well, not just an intellectual. He is science. He said that he disagree with me or disagreeing with science. Right. The whole purpose of science, Dr. Fauci, is that one person with proof outweighs the rest of the universe of experts who are wrong. Right. That's what science is. Appeals to authority are the antithesis of science. When people say you're a climate, you're a climate skeptic. All scientists are supposed to be skeptics. You're supposed to all be skeptics. You're supposed to have to prove something. Right. Yeah. You know, as society gets more complex, we tend to think that we we got to leave it up to experts. Right. But experts don't have the answers. Experts are the ones that get us into trouble. It's the it's the big brains like like Robert McNamara, you know. And 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 he had a computer model for how many troops he had to put into Vietnam in order to get victory. He really did. He was the first guy to actually do this kind of thing. If you had 30,000 troops, you'll get this, but if you had 60,000 troops, then you get this. Doesn't work that way. Which we discovered to our great pain. And so they they're just arrogant, but as we get more and more complex and technical, especially now with the tech giants, fundamentally emotionally I won't say damaged, I'll just say emotionally disconnected people not only can survive in tech, they're good at it. That's why they're good at tech, is because they don't give a damn about anything else. It's them and the computer code, and that's why they've been successful. So we really are facing a revolution of people who are on the autism spectrum is an awful lot of Asperger's running a lot of normal people's lives out here. And you can almost give them a little bit of credit because they don't have that emotional connection to look at other people as other people. And they get more and more powerful. And guys like Klaus Schwab are are their pole star, you know. And they, they dream of a future 
where a very small number of them who tell each other how smart they are all the time will tell the rest of us idiots what to do. And even if they were right, that would still be immoral. But they're not even right. So, you know, so you got to fight these miserable, controlling, genetically defective swine. I had... It's one of the most embarrassing things I've ever talked about publicly because it's one of the things I'm most ashamed of. But I'll tell you about it real quick. When I started doing public speaking events, I went to an event in, I don't, I actually don't remember where it was. It was in America. And afterwards we're taking questions and people are coming up to me and stuff. And, and a, and a guy came down the aisle and he looked exactly like junior samples from Hee Haw, you know? <laughs> Big guy with a, coveralls and everything and I saw this guy coming and I thought to myself why is it that I don't get the cool people you know why can't I get the, the movie stars why do I have to get these kind of hayseeds and, and, and hicks I'd never felt that before that's what my that's what my emotional reaction to seeing this guy come down the aisle was and then instantly this thunderclap in the back of my head says this man knows a hundred things better than you do and he probably knows three or four things better than anybody in the world <laughs> I don't know what those things are, but there's no question about that. You need to you need to get out of your own sunshine here, Bill, and 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 recognize that this guy is probably a world expert in something, and certainly knows more than you about uh, any number of things. And just like that, one thing, and then bang, right on the other. And from that moment forward, I have been absolutely, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, vaccinated against this. This intellectualism disease. It was a disgraceful thought to have. Mm. And, and, and I, at least to my credit, I managed to spank myself right away. But it's true, right? I mean, it's true. The problem with these intellectuals is that they think they know how to run a gas station better than the guy who runs the gas station. Right. From a room in Washington. Right. That's it's stupid. It's stupid. It's tons of people heavy on theory and Light on reality. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite line, my favorite line about about left wingers is they say, "Well, yes, it works in practice, but will it work in theory?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the one of the videos that was the most touching to me that you have produced and 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 posted. We both got the COVID really bad, and when you were talking about gratefulness and i thought of the you, you you talked about just not taking things for granted and i always think back anytime a, a little cat or a puppy dog or something comes and wants attention when you said that the lesson you learned it touched me when i watched this the the lesson that you learned is like never ever turn around those kinds of life living experiences that you get before we got sick back in uh, late june we lost a cat that my wife and I both adored. I'd had him for 15 years, and he was super healthy. And then all of a sudden, I'm petting him. He's got these little bumps behind his ears. Next thing you know, he's got cancer. He's got three weeks to live. And when I look back at all the times he came up to me wanting attention, and I just was too busy looking at the computer doing something, I, I have had two cats for a while, and the other one's never been the same since uh, Pismo died. But now when that other cat comes up to me, every single time, every single time, I stop what I'm doing and pick him up and pay attention to him. Because if I could get it back, I would do it. COVID 
was, well, I spent, you know, 20 days at the Wuhan weight loss clinic, lost 16 pounds. I didn't eat anything for eight or nine days and couldn't drink much of anything. I, my, I had sore mm. throat so bad from coughing because I got had a bronchitis when I was a kid that somewhere around day five or six, I, I just had to drink some water because I was completely dehydrated. And I took a drink of this and, and, and I said to myself, this is like drinking a cup of electricity. It was just, just really, really bad. Um, mm. I had, I had a plan for this. I'm, I'm not confident in the vaccine. And so I have not taken the shot. I know many good people who have. And so I talked to my personal physician and said, this thing is everywhere. Everybody's going to get it sooner or later. It's like the cold. It's just, it, the, here it is. So what do we do? Cause I know there are a, a number of, of non vaccine treatments that are very effective, especially, uh, not only especially, but only if you get it early. So, so here's what the doctor said to me. He said, look, Bill, if you or, or, or your wife feel sick, go get tested immediately. And if it comes back positive, don't do what they tell you. They're going to tell you, go home, relax, you know, drink plenty of fluids. And all that's doing is giving the virus a chance to catch a foothold. He said, call me immediately and I will get you on, on a program of drugs and some zinc and, and all this other stuff. We'll just, we'll just knock it down. You'll have a couple, you'll have a couple days of like a bad cold and, and that'll be it. So my wife tests positive. I start feeling a little funny and I call the doctor and he calls me back 20 minutes later and says, none of this medication exists in California anymore. It's simply not there. Mm. You cannot get it. Okay. So two weeks of, 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 you know, it was just miserable. I felt like a carrot, you know, Paul, mm. I was like planted in bed. I didn't want to move. I didn't want to roll over. I just, I'm just here. And and yeah, you know, it, it, it makes you, I, I was, sometimes I say things that are very hard for people to believe because they just, there's the kind of a backstory to them. But I'm actually very glad that I got it. And I'm actually very glad that, that I paid. I, I'm glad it made me really, really sick. Hmm. You know, I really am. I'm glad I didn't coast through it because, because we, our society has got to the point where we think that if we don't die in our sleep at 103 in a hospital, peacefully passing away, surrounded by our loving relatives, then somehow this is a tragedy, you know? And I had never been sick. I'd always been very healthy. And I needed to know what it was like to be really, really sick for a while, long enough so that I couldn't remember what being healthy was like, or I couldn't imagine what being healthy would be like on the other end. You hear about all these people who, you know, the guys who, we're marching through Africa. They're building the Panama Canal, and they're down with malaria. And then they get yellow fever, and they're just laid up for six months. Oh, that took them six months to recover. Well, you just read that line, you know. And then you're then you're out for three weeks, flat out. And I just think it's something that people need to experience because we have made such a Disneyland for ourselves mm. that we don't. That reality is so far away that it, it forces us to make bad decisions. There's not a person in this country. I really think, I think I, look, when you have a society where the number one health problem for poor people is obesity, you are in uncharted grounds, right? That is, that's never happened before. And, and I have, I've been cold and I've been hungry. And I've been in pain, but I've never been really cold or really hungry or really in pain. I was really in pain, but I was in real pain for five hours. 
And I'm very glad I went through that. And had a kidney stone that was unbelievable. And and I'm I'm lying in a bed for five hours, and the entire left side of my body is just on fire. And I could not remember what it was like to not be in absolute agony. And I'd love to tell you I just kind of bit the bullet and got through it. But honestly, it just completely unmans you. You just whimpering. And five hours later, some doctor comes down and gives me a shot of the lauded, which is pretty powerful opiate. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, oh. But we live in we live in a world like this, right? You break an arm, you're in the hospital. Half an hour, an hour later, you got a shot of of morphine. You get anesthetics for oral surgery, you know, all this stuff. We don't suffer anymore. And like I said, I know this is a very strange thing to say, but it's important. And I'm glad I suffered because I did, and so did my wife. It was it was really nasty, and. I feel like I, I feel like I needed to, like I, it's almost like I had a debt that I had to pay, you know. Hmm. And I'll tell you one thing: I've earned my immunity, that's for sure. And my body did what my body was supposed to do. And I knew enough about the biology to know it. By day three, I'm thinking, okay, my immune system prior to this is thinking we're such badasses because I never get sick, you know. We got our defenses all laid out, you know, and we got our machine guns, and we got our claymore mines, and you know, we're, we're ready, we're ready for anything. Bring on this COVID thing. And, and then by day three, it's like you're pushing all these buttons on the claymores and nothing's going on and there's no machine gun ammunition and the artillery is not coming. And it's like immune systems looking around going, they're inside the wire, man. You know, we're, they're everywhere. <laughs> and so you just, you just, your body just does what it does. When you're really sick and any real disease is a race against your immune system versus this pathogen. Can your immune system figure out what it is and attack it? before it makes so many copies of itself that it's no longer possible. And for a healthy person, for this disease, the fatality rate for healthy people is, is so close to zero, that's certainly the nearest whole number, right? Right. And when you hear people, the, the average COVID death, 2.4 comorbidities, 2.2.5 comorbidities, diabetic and emphysema. Right. You know, I don't mean that to sound dismissive of those people, but... This whole thing has been not just mishandled. It's been, it's been inflicted upon us. Mm. Very true. Let's just hope that this isn't, uh, taken down by, by the, the big tech, uh, whatever you call them. The only time I've gotten stuff taken down was when I, I, I don't want to say the V word. I refer to it as the Victrola. You know, some people out there have a Victrola. Some people don't like Victrolas. Some people have three or four Victrolas. Other people think, I don't need a Victrola. I, I can go through life without a Victrola. And the only time I've ever been yanked for spreading misinformation was one time I had any questions about the Victrola. Uh, and I haven't questioned the Victrola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Not on YouTube, I, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I went to the doctor expecting to get a lecture or, or expecting to get you know, a big speech about the Victrola. And then he told me that he wasn't a big fan of the Victrola. Not interesting. Yeah, yeah, so. why? And and it seems like a large number of frontline medical people are willing to lose their jobs rather than take home a Victrola. <laughs> and and that, that's data, right? That's, that's, that's evidence. Right. So, look, you know, maybe we just close with this, Paul. It's a strange, it's a strange life. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. 
I am so grateful for, for all of the support and all of the kind words from you and from everybody else. But it's a very strange life when the last thought you have before you go to sleep is, my God, I hope I am wrong about everything. You know? Yeah, I know. Well put. That's a great place for a great place to close. It'd be wonderful if we were wrong about a lot of this stuff. Please let me be wrong about these things. <laughs> well, Bill Whittle, thank you very much. I thank enjoyed you. I had this. a great time. Great pleasure. Love to do it again. Next time we'll talk about music and 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 movies and stuff like that. The yeah. important stuff. I would love that. I have anytime. All right. Absolutely. Well, sir, Godspeed. And to you too. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer. Written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.